0: Hello, everybody. This is Jimmy. Welcome to another episode of The Jimmy Tingle Show. I'm very excited today to introduce my friend, and he just came out with a new book that is just fantastic. I want to read a little bit of his bio for you. John Taylor Ike Williams, a founder of NERAM and Williams Literary Agency, specializes in biography, history, politics, natural science, and anthropology. He is a member of the NEA Literary panel chair of the Boston Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, co-chair of the Fine Arts Work Center, a member of the advisory board of the Biography Conference, and he is a former director of the Boston Book Festival. As a lawyer, Ike specializes in intellectual property. That's where I come in, ladies and gentlemen, the intellectual property and and First Amendment litigation as well as a comic, particularly in publishing film, television, and news and new media. Ike is the author of The Shores of Bohemia, a Cape Cod story, 1910 to 1960, a rousing account of the artists and political revolutionaries who made the Cape a hub of American culture in the early 20th 20th century. I just want to read one review to start off. This is from Drew Faust, author of The Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War. Drew writes, A cornucopia of characters whose lives in the first half of the 20th century made the outer reaches of Cape Cod a site of exuberant artistic creativity and social and political experimentation. The bohemian world Ike Williams depicts will fascinate readers interested in the winds and tides of modern American culture, as well as those of us today who walk the Cape's beaches and swim in its waters. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, the one and the only Mr. Ike Williams. How are
1: you, Ike? Hello, Jimmy. Good
0: good to see you? you again
1: nice to see you again
0: yes yes i went to your reading the other night at the uh at the harvard bookstore it was great it was great to be in the same room with you and and so many other people who have read the book and just got the book recently and it's just fun to see you uh in action talking about this labor of love that you've been working on for a while number one uh how long have you been working on this book and number two what made you want to write this book
1: too long. There's the answer of how long. Uh, with um, you know, having had two jobs, running a literary agency and a law firm, uh, there wasn't a lot of side time. Three boys. Um, it's dedicated to my wife. I think you knew Noah, um, Jimmy, yes. Noah, Noah Hall, and yes. um, and of course I didn't start out dedicating it to her because we worked a bit on it together, um, but. Um, And after her death, I sort of stopped for a while and then I regained my speed. And so it came out May 17th from Ferris Strauss and I was (laughs) damn glad to finish it.
0: (laughs) That's great. Well, it's a real masterpiece. Uh, Just it captures a time in history from 1910 to 1960, primarily focusing on Provincetown, Wellfleet and Truro and the cast of characters that showed up there on those shores Uh, from that time period. What made you want to, you know, focus on that cast of characters in that time period?
1: I didn't know that part of the world at all. I'm a Gloucester kid. Uh, I think I'd been over the canal once in my lifetime before I went to courting my wife in Wellfleet. Uh, Her dad was a painter and architect of note, a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty um, bohemian individual. And, uh, through uh, my wife and her family, I was introduced to a lot of the people that are in this book who were just beginning um, to vanish off the scene. And they so fascinated me that I thought, I don't think anybody's ever written a group portrait of this incredible two generations of, of very political activists, intellectual, artistic people who just came to this very small place. I mean, in 1910, the only two ways you could get the Provincetown, where by the dayboat from Boston in Good Weather, or the fish boat from New York, from, it landed in Fall River, and then you could take the train into Provincetown. There was no highway then, and the roads were all sand, even if you had a car. So it was a very remote place, um, and it remained remote uh, almost right through 1960, because the book ends in 1960, because not only does this political period end in 1960, as far as I'm concerned, with the end of liberalism and the two defeats of Badley Stevenson in the Democratic primaries, but also the creation of the National Seashore, which in some senses was great because it preserved part of the lower capes, um, both sides of the, of the actual beach part, but they'd run out of money, so they only got up as far as Dennis. I mean, the objective was to go all the way to the canal, and it turned it into America's playground, and so every piece of unbuilt land was built on. So. It's a much different looking place mm-hmm. than it was during that 50-year period. Um, so it's about a group of people that inhabited that very different place for 50 years. But I was just so fascinated by them, whether they were architects or political activists or writers or designers, painters. It was just a uh, just a great um, pleasure to, to know them all. And many of them I represented either as a lawyer or as a literary agent as time went by. But I realized there were all kinds of <clears throat> biographies of Mary McCarthy or Edmund Wilson or John Dos Passos, John Reed. There wasn't a group portrait of these people. And what motivated this kind of culture they had during this period? And I thought, I'll take a whack at it. And um, that's what you got.
0: Yeah, well, you did a fascinating job. And what I found really interesting is that they, most of them migrated up from Greenwich Village in New York in the early uh, 1900s, around starting around 1910. And they were living in the village. It must have been a great respite to go from New York, you know, Greenwich Village in 1900, probably a pretty gritty place, to the wilds of Cape Cod, the outer Cape, particularly at a time when it wasn't very, very developed at
1: all. All three were fishing communities. I mean, they'd started as whaling communities, then they'd moved to cod, and as the cod moved north to herring, and now that they were fished out, basically. So there were lots of empty fish piers and uh, fish shacks, and, and a lot of people were out of work. Uh, the land had been stripped of both timber and early farming, because it settled in the 17th century, very little topsoil. So there's, it's a hard way to make a living if there is fishing. So there was a lot of empty housing and cheap land for sale in 1910. And in the village in 1910, Bohemia was beginning to attract tourists already into the village. Now, you couldn't call yourself a Bohemian if you lived above 15th Street. So you lived right Right. in those streets (laughs) that radiate around Washington Square from the Stanford White big arch there at the end of the avenue. And they were all in little tiny streets, embedded with this huge immigrant population of Italian, Irish, and Jews that had come during the Civil War period for Irish and Italians shortly thereafter, and then enormous amounts of Jews during the pogroms just before the 1900s in Tsarist Russia. So it was an enormous sort of hotbed of reform, people trying to reform both politics and the working conditions of labor. And remember, in those days... um, If you were a worker, you worked uh, a six-day week, 10 hours a day, that man, woman, and child. So, I mean, it was a very tough position for workers who were suddenly working in these enormous mines, textile mills that hadn't existed before the Civil War. So there's a a lot of uprising about this condition of, of the American lower sort of classes and economic classes. So it's a really vibrant period, and it draws all these young people to work in the village and in journalism or in reform, working in you know, settlement houses or teaching in the public school systems in New York, uh, which were really how all these immigrants made their climatization into American culture was through a great public school system. Um, so it was a vibrant period, but it was, it was very expensive even then to live in New York. Um, and um, when they began to discover Provincetown, they found that it was really cheap housing to be had. Um, it was really, they were led by a woman who was both active in the world of Greenwich Village, built around the masses magazine, which was the magazine of the left of the progressive and socialist, which all of these people belong to those two parties. Um, and Mary Heaton Vorse, actually she was born in, up in the Berkshires, her family owned the Red Lion Inn, Stockton. And she'd been to Europe as a young girl, spoke four languages, you know, very sophisticated, but for whatever reason, she'd fallen into the American labor movement in the Progressive and socialist, And she had become an expert on both European labor movements and the American labor. Remember we're starting with the uh, International Women's Garment Workers Union and the Wobblies the International Workers of the World, and the AFL-CIO, this is the big period of union organizing. She was very active. And she recruited all these friends of hers who also contributed to the masses. To come and stay and rent her by in Provincetown from 1900 on. Charles Hawthorne had also opened his famous school of painting uh, just four years before 1910 and beginning to attract the very best young painters in America. So it, it suddenly became a place where all the sort of political activists, writers, and painters uh, were finding a home and a cheap home. Floyd Dell, who was the editor of The Masses at one point, referred to Provincetown as Greenwich Village Sunburn. So (laughs) So that's sort of the setting.
0: So I, I have to tell you, I've been going down to the Cape for years, and I would guess that most people in Massachusetts or New England or the country for that matter don't really know about the early history of the Cape, especially the Outer Cape with that intellectual dimension. Now, when these folks were coming down there, were they coming just down for the summer as a way to, you know, relax and have fun and just explore creativity and, and party? Because I know there's a lot of partying that's going on in your book. Uh, <laughs> I, there's a lot of partying and there's a lot of shenanigans going on in this book. <laughs> but was that part of the motivation, just to get
1: out of town? So we could set the table about the Bohemians. Remember, this was a, a period where all of these young people were breaking away from the Victorian mores. Mm-hmm. The women didn't want to be uh, just someone who raised children and uh, the husband led a career uh, and a social life, and they stayed at home with the kids. These young women wanted the same um, life as men. They were called the new women, uh, and they rallied around all of the women who were seeking to vote for women. Remember, women had no vote until 1929. So for 19 years, they have no vote. So they're very active in suffrage. Margaret Sanger, who summers every summer, in Provincetown, had created birth control, and, and that, of course, was controversial. But for women, it was an enormous um, feeling of that maybe they didn't have to have a child every time they became pregnant. They also felt that they should have the same sort of romantic life, whether they were affairs before marriage or even affairs after marriage, as the men were having. So it was a, a radical period for for men and women. Um, both sexually and romantically. Uh, marriages didn't last a long time often. Uh, they weren't particularly great parents. Uh, they were really <laughs> focused on their careers in politics. Um, and the kids had to sort of thrive on their own. Um, but many of these people had thrived on their own anyway, like Emma Goldman, who'd come as a young girl out of the uh, Lithuanian Pale you know, and went to work in a textile factory in New York was 16. A lot of them were immigrants. Um, big Bill Haywood, the found, one of the founders of the Wobblies, well, the International Workers of the World, had gone into the mines at 12. His Dad had been a Pony Express writer. I mean, and a lot of them had come from fancy universities, Harvard mm-hmm. and Princeton, and lots of them from the Middle West, too. Um, so they all met in Greenwich Village. They found one, of course, once they could get there, living was cheap. It was beautiful weather in the summer. And many of them then stayed on to paint or to write, but found it easier to, and began to realize they could, if they had any success at all, buildings were incredibly cheap. You could buy a woodlot or a well fleet for, you know, $50, $100. Uh, it might not have a road or a, remember, none of these houses had heat or sewage anyway right. uh, before the 30s. Um, it was cheap to live there, and most people found if they were on a creative jag, they'd stay there until they finished their book. You mentioned Norman Mailer. I mean, I mean Norman loved to write in Provincetown. Just found it, a place that seemed to call out to him.
0: How did some of these literary giants end up there? For example, Eugene O'Neill. How does Eugene O'Neill end up in Provincetown, and what about
1: what time was that? He comes down in nineteen. 19- 16 on the dayboat, the Dorothy Bradford from Boston, with an old Irish revolutionary alcoholic who'd been a deckhand with him on tramp steamers. O'Neill had dropped out of um, Princeton, already a heavy drinker, the son of a famous sort of actor of that period, James O'Neill, uh, of which he wrote many of his plays about his father and mother uh, and brother. Um, and then he was a deckhand. This particular summer, he'd gone to study with George Baker at a playwriting class at Harvard that was famous. And he had a bunch of plays he'd written. And this, his Irish friend said to one of the couples who had started a theater down there from plays they were already performing in New York and Greenwich Village, they decided to create a little theater company. called the Provincetown Players just on the front porch of the house. And O'Neill was introduced by his, his shipmate. He said, you know, this guy has a bunch of plays. And so they said, well, why don't you read us one? And O'Neill was so shy that he had to have someone else read it. It was the, the first play of this Glencairn cycle that made O'Neill's career all performed at the Provincetown Players, but about the life of these deckhands on this tramp steamer, the Glencairn. So that, and he, um, he just finds Provincetown perfect for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an alcoholic. But he's an interesting alcoholic. O'Neill would never write while he drank. He said, nothing I've ever written while I drank is any good. So he he would go sober when he wrote all his plays. I mean, he won the the Nobel Prize for playwriting in 1922. I mean, but the next year he was hopelessly drunken. I mean, that's what his life was until late in his life in the 40s. But he found Provincetown, just as Tennessee Williams did, another alcoholic. But for some reason, Provincetown worked for them. They could stop drinking when they wanted to really create. Williams' best plays are all written in Provincetown. Many of the painters who were heavy drinkers found Provincetown. Alcohol was considered a muse for Bohemians. I mean, right. it was just part of their life. They viewed drinking as you know part of a sort of Athenian way of finding the muse and joy in their lives. And obviously it led to a lot of damage too. Um, But as you said, it led to a lot of partying too. Anyway, and a lot of creativity.
0: So they would go there, Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill, Norman Mailer. When does he show up there and what works does he turn out while he was there?
1: Mailer is at Harvard and he has a girlfriend at BU. uh, And she brings him down to Provincetown. He's never been there. He's a New Jersey kid. Uh, and uh, he finds it fascinating, and he starts a novel there. He'd been working in a a mental hospital in Waltham while he was at Harvard, uh, and the title of the book he was writing about the, his time in this um, mental hospital was The Naked and the Dead. Wow. And then the, the minute he's out of Harvard, he's drafted, uh, and he writes all these letters to her uh, from the Philippines where he's serving uh, about the war. And that becomes The Naked and Dead, which he finishes in Provincetown, keeping the title of his first book. And after that, almost every book he writes is predominantly written in, in Provincetown. So
0: and, um, was he coming down just for the summers or was he, did, was he living there year round?
1: He'd live there whenever he was writing. I mean, he lived in Brooklyn, always had a house in Brooklyn. He loved Brooklyn and he loved Provincetown and he bounced back and forth. You know, if the muse was singing to him in Brooklyn, he'd write in Brooklyn. Remember, he was a co-owner of the uh, Village Voice for a while. And ran, remember, he ran for, for mayor in, in New York uh, with Jimmy Breslin. They ran in a ticket right. together. Uh, so he spent time. And all of these people are really active in radical politics, whether it's Henry Wallace, communist party, progressive, socialist, liberal parties. So you have to be in New York for much of that work, right. whether it's union work or, or just activist work. So they're back and forth all the time, but it, it's, it's no longer just a summer place, it's a creative place. I mean, Hans Hoffmann, who ran the great painting school that created abstract expressionism in America, spent eight months a year there, and then he had a school in New York for four months. He, he spent eight months there from May to October every year. So it was it became a place where you if if you got in gear and what you were creating, you just stayed.
0: Tell me about the Provincetown Players, because that's just a legendary story in the world of theater. It was a theater on a pier, right? Is that right? On a a wharf in Provincetown, and Eugene O'Neill and others produced some of their earliest and most successful works there?
1: Right. And that that pier isn't there anymore, but uh, I I mentioned Mary Heaton Vorse, who started inviting all these people to join her in Provincetown, the labor activist and writer. Uh, Mary's house was opposite a pier which she owned on the other side of the street jutting out into the harbor and at the end of it was a large fish house which she'd um, given to a friend's wife who was a painter and I told you about these people who were beginning to perform plays at the liberal club in New York and then bring them down to New York and these were people like John Reed and Louise Bryan and all these people we also writing, Dorothy Day was an actress in them. I mean, all these people led to St. Vincent Belay were acting in New York and then coming down and acting again in these plays in the summer. Many of them written by these people like Susan Glasswell and Jim Cook who were the main stays of, of organizing this theater. Um, so they were all writing and acting in it. And then this moment when O'Neill, re- his play is read and they say, this is what we're looking for. We want an American theme in our plays. We don't want to be mimicking Europe. All of these people are trying to create a new American voice in mm-hmm. painting and in writing and in everything. Mm-hmm. And so they see O'Neill as you know, he concentrates on average people, farmers, working men, sailors, and that's what they all want to ground their work in. Um, so uh, that theater then moves to New York the pier goes down in a hurricane, but the playhouse moves to New York to Greenwich Village. It moves three times. It probably really closes its doors about 1940 in New York. But O'Neill continues to write plays for it in New York as well. And Jake Cook and Susan Glasspool, who'd organized the theater, moved to New York to organize it again. Um, and there it becomes a major place. I mean, that's where Paul Robeson plays um in all god's children uh and nobody'd seen a black actor um, in in a romantic situation with a white woman. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan um threatened to blow up the theater. thousands of Ku Klux planners came in the mayor of New York tried to close it down um, so it was a very controversial theater. It was putting on things that, about America that Americans hadn't seen before do you think uh
0: Ike that the that whole early movement of the early 1900s up through the 1960 lent itself to the modern women's movement, gay rights movement, civil rights movement, political activism. It seems like the, a lot of the roots f- that we find today in our culture uh, started there. Is that correct?
1: I, I, I really, that's what attracted me to the, the idea of a group portrait of these people, because, I mean, the thing about Bohemia is it's totally tolerant. Uh, there's no interest in your ethnicity, your race, or your class. It's just, you know, what do you got, as Robert Binsky used to say. I mean, what can you offer me creativity? Uh, and if, you know, if, if there was romantic potential, that was good too. But it was about what what kind of creativity have you got And it? So, Jew, Christian, Catholic, man, woman, gay, straight. It really didn't make any difference. Remember, it's also set in probably the most tolerant places in America, which are seaports. Robinstown was a naval base in both the First World War and the Second War. And uh, towns with navies tend to be tolerant, right. uh, <laughs> naval bases. So um, so there was lots of drinking and, and, and sex, you know, it wasn't... Um, these, these fishermen had seen it all, you know, Portuguese and Yankees. Right. So it was a, a place where people felt safe. Um, women felt safe to be independent. Lots of homosexuals came there earlier, long before we think of Provincetown as a, as a gay summer place. It was a very gay creative place. I mean, obviously Tennessee Williams, but you can go on and on. Many of the, the painters and, and writers came there because it was a, a very tolerant place for um, and that's early on. and we're talking in the 20s, and 30s.
0: And the locals, Ike, what was their reaction to this influx of New Yorkers and socialists and you know, gay folks and women's liberation folks? <laughs> how were the Portuguese fishermen
1: reacting? And the Yankees, how were they reacting? Well, the Portuguese fishermen were a pretty full-blooded lot. I mean, if they were pretty girls who wanted to really go out with the real fishermen. Uh, there was plenty of action in the bars and stuff. The Portuguese wives were, of course, a much more conservative lot, deeply Catholic, many of them born on the mainland or in the Verdes and the, on the off islands. Um Oddly enough, they were the first to realize when we're talking about the gay community um, that there was money to be made uh, because the Yankees were not very interested in renting their their places or having them in their hotels, whereas the Portuguese began boarding houses in the 20s and 30s uh, and then created all the good nightclubs, the Atlantic House, you know, Eartha Kitt, Lena Horn, all of these great singers came down. But this was a club basically for a gay and straight mixed clientele. And there were lots of clubs along Commercial Street, almost all owned by Portuguese. I mean, if you read even the papers, you almost never see any fights about someone's sexuality or attacks on women it was a it was a really safe place i am not saying that they didn't you know talk a snook at some of these bohemians of course they did i mean right uh, these were deeply catholic you know uh, traditional uh, portuguese fishermen on the other hand they all drank and <laughs> they became the center of rum running and and because of the bohemians there was a very good market for all the booze that these Portuguese and Yankee rum runners could bring into Provincetown Harbor. So there was a lot of back and forth between the the groups.
0: That's good. So is it, they lived in, they lived in harmony, is what you're saying. They lived in harmony, even though the rest of the country hadn't caught up to this. Uh, potentially harmonious relationship. Oh, yeah. The
1: Portuguese did, uh, and the Yankees didn't live in so much harmony. The Portuguese live in the West End, still do, in Provincetown. And the, you know, the Wasps and Yankees lived in the East End, even though they were all fishermen. So, uh, you know, there was plenty of territorial stuff. Uh, but as far as the Bohemians went, um, as long as um, they were good customers and they provided pretty women for the town, um, I think they were very
0: welcome. Yeah. So, Ike, when did you start coming down to uh, the Lower Cape on a regular basis?
1: Well, I came down just as the period that I write about ended, 1960. Uh, I came down, according my wife, uh, who was a painter, uh, in 1967. And uh, two years later, we bought an old house in Wellfleet. Uh, it was the house where Mary McCarthy uh, moved to with her new husband after she left Edmund Wilson and wrote this kind of famous acid bath novel about all these bohemians in Wellfleet and Farrow called A Charmed Life. And in the um, studio uh, that was on the land next to the house, the Partisan Review, which was the magazine of the liberal period that championed the rights of workers and a much more fair allocation of wealth and resources, um, they moved to the sort of, more liberal movement and the partisan review was kind of their magazine of choice uh and it was edited in that studio um arthur Schlesinger, who had a summer house in wellfleet wrote the age of jackson there which won won the he surprised that year biography of jackson so uh that i already was deep into it when i when i bought that place and as i said my father-in-law was a painter and architect and he knew all these Bauhaus architects who settled in Thoreau uh, after they had to flee Germany in the 30s as Hitler closed the Bauhaus. And many of them were intermarried with Jews or were Jewish, like Kandinsky and, and uh, Marcel Breuer. And so they had to flee, and most of them ended up with summer houses and welfare. Uh And he was, as an architect, very close to them. As a painter, he was very close to all the painters. And and he was pretty far to the left. He had a, a farm on Boundbrook Island, and above his vegetable stand, it said, no Trotskyites. <laughs> <laughs> and in those days, in, Wellesley, in in 1934, when Roosevelt becomes president, I can't find a bohemian on the Lower Cape who voted for him. Uh, they were all either members of the Communist Party or, 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 or socialists. In his next election, in thirty-eight, they'd come around to him. They thought he was just a patrician in sheep's clothing and was just going to do the same old game of talking liberal but being conservative. But as they watched him deal with the Depression, they, they became enormous fans, uh, but not for the first four years as they watched him deal with you know this incredible Depression, which was an enormous effect on all these people. And that's a mainstay of, of these people. I mean, it, it, they they are true believers that America could be a much fairer place for men, women, blacks, Jews, everybody that they see being discriminated against during this fifty years. They have really strong feelings about equality. They have really strong feelings about the misallocation of wealth. I mean, the idea that a worker is dismissed with no pension after years, and a boss who runs a bad company is is given a huge golden parachute, uh, I mean, that just, it just drove them crazy be one of them. And so that
0: their values, their political values were reflected in their works.
1: Even Norman Mailer, read the um, Barbary Shores. I mean, Norman, you know, was a very big campaigner for Henry Wallace who ran, you know, after Roosevelt died. He ran against Truman for the, for the Democratic, in the Democratic primary. And he was much more to the left of Truman
0: still attracting the same type of people. It was still attracting the artistic people with a set of values who were using their work, whether as as a playwrights or writers or musicians or comics or whatever, to just uh, reflect their values. I know you're gonna be speaking at the Wellfleet
1: Library soon, right? It's the it's the center of social life and intellectual life, uh in Wellfleet. It's just one of the it one of the li the librarian, uh, just a few years ago, won the, the Librarian of of the Year Award in the United States. I mean, it's that good a library. Wow. It's a great library.
0: Wow. So it's still a wonderful place. And of course, not to mention all the art galleries in Provincetown and all the performance spaces there and the WOMR radio station there. that That really does great avant-garde work and they have, you know, just a wonderful lineup of they keep it local, but it's also universal in the sense of they're dealing with global issues all the time politics, art, culture, whatever. And the same with Truro, with Kevin Rice at the PayMet Center for the Performing Arts in, in Truro.
1: And the Truro Center for the Arts is a really Truro center for the arts and the Provincetown Art Association and Museum and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. I mean, those three institutions have been there, they, they were founded. Almost during this period, I mean, they were after 1960, but they were in the in the late 60s and early 70s. And they've really continued just what you're saying, Jimmy, about carrying on this place that makes it a comfortable place for young writers and painters to get a footing on. Jeff's in, as you mentioned, Howard's son. Jeff is the one who reads the book, this book for on the audio.
0: Oh, great. Um, when is that going to come out?
1: No, it's out. You can oh, get it from out. Blackstone Audio. Yeah. Oh, great. 11 hours. <laughs> of jeff
0: reading it oh great i would prefer to listen and walk and listen to it it's just easier than maybe you know than sitting down and 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 reading for me anyway uh but that's it's great wonderful. for car
1: rides yeah anyway jeff does jeff does a brilliant job and of course he knew he grew up with all these people
0: i'll tell you something about the wellfleet audiences and this goes for the cape in general in my experience they are the best audiences they are so good they appreciate uh comedy. They appreciate theater. They appreciate good writing. They appreciate art. They're just wonderfully supportive people. Yes. When are you going to be at the library?
1: Uh, I'm at the library in, in August with, uh, with a Helena Kennedy. Have you ever heard her speak down there? She's a human rights lawyer based in England.
0: Now, Ike, if people want to find out where you're doing your book readings or things like at the Wellfleet Library, where would they find that schedule?
1: Uh, let's see the publisher has it Ferris Strauss, and Giroux. but um do you uh, have a website I mean, they, uh well they could they, they, they're free to email me at, okay. at ike shores at shoresofbohemia.com, and I'm glad to
0: okay you know, we'll put respond. that in we'll put that in the show notes in this show Ike okay. at shoresofbohemia.com I yeah, just I K E. I'll, yeah
1: and no break shoresofbohemia.com. shores of
0: of bohemia which is the name of the book it's a it's a fun read. I, wa- I want to finish it. I might finish it listening to Jeff Zinn in my year as I walk around the Charles River or maybe in Wellfleet. But it's a fun read, and it brings back a time that uh, a lot of people don't realize the real roots of the Outer Cape. And it's uh, fascinating to find all these incredible people in one place and that their work is still being carried on in the tradition of making the country a better country through whatever means people are able to do so. Again, I congratulations on the book. It's a great read. And I encourage folks to go out and
1: get it. You know, the Wellfleet General Market runs a really nice bookstore. Yes. Uh, Stephen Russell. Yep. G- Jimmy, it's been a privilege. You know, yes. we've known each other a long time, but we've never done one of these. <laughs> no,
0: we never have. So it's a lot of fun. By the way, that's where I got the book. I got it. It was 15% off down at uh, right. the, the Wellfleet general market used to be lemurs i still call it lemurs and stephen russell sold it to me he says i said why is it 15 percent off he goes we do 15 percent off to all the new publications i said what a great deal and that's another way yeah. that the town supports the arts so i thank yep. you so much for joining us today oh, yeah. congratulations continue success and i'll <laughs> see you on the shores of bohemia
1: i'm looking forward to that <laughs>
0: Thank you for joining us today. This has been a Humor for Humanity production. Our mission is your mission. Humor for Humanity at jimmytingle.com. Thank you.